You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. Hey guys, we want to welcome you to OnlineCalvary.com and we want to say especially happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. We honor you, we love you, we're so glad that you are with us. So I want to tell you, a couple years ago my kids did something really nice for me on Father's Day. They filled out this form that uh, my wife Carrie put together that was called My Dad is a Superhero. And in it, there was a series of questions about me that was supposed to encourage me as a dad, which it did at times, and then at other times really made me question whether these kids knew me at all. So one of the fill-ins to this, my dad is a superhero, was my dad can run faster than a, and my daughter Mia wrote a tiger, which isn't true, I can run faster than a flock of geese, uh, technically a gaggle of geese, but anyway, that's a different story. Um, but still made me feel good about myself. Uh, my daughter Livy wrote that I am faster than a flower. Um, I'm not really sure where these speedy flowers are, but I can beat them in a race any day. My son, Xander, said my dad is faster than a buffalo. Now, that is not a compliment. If you've ever seen a buffalo, and maybe after this you can Google buffalo running. You will not find any videos because buffalo don't run. They roam, just like the song says. And uh, so now a question is, what do I like to do? My daughter Mia wrote, play guitar. Thank you. And uh, through careful observation, my daughter Livy says, my dad likes to nap, which I think I've taken three naps in the last 10 years. Apparently she has observed all three of those. And uh, then uh, for my favorite food, uh, Mia and Xander wrote steak, which is correct. Um, and then my daughter Livy wrote Cinnamon Toast Crunch, which is also true. It is when I'm not eating keto, I'm, and I'm totally over the edge, I'm, I'm having Cinnamon Toast Crunch. And so uh, the other question was, my dad is really good at. Mia wrote, making us laugh. Thank you very much. Livy wrote, being encouraging. Thank you very much. My, being, what is my dad really good at? My son Xander wrote, watching TV. So uh, it's an applied skill. And uh, so uh, the other question is, my dad can fix, or my dad can lift, I'm sorry. My, uh, my dad can lift, Mia wrote, a 20-pound ball. That's what these guns are for. And uh, Livy wrote, my dad can lift, a basketball. And Xander wrote, my dad can lift, a bed. And, uh, you know, if I'm going to watch TV and nap, you got to have the bed in the right spot. So now the only question that they all wrote the same answer to was the last question, which is, my dad can fix. And they all three of them wrote anything, uh, which really makes me feel like these kids don't live with me or know me at all, because anything that I fix, I first break more than it's already broken. That's just how I do it. I break it even more, and then I fix it. Uh, but to them, I'm the fix-it guy, and I've built that reputation over the years. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. And that is, what do you want your reputation to be? What's the thing that you want everyone to think about when they think about 
you. I mean, do you want them to think of you and think, now that is a faithful person right there. Do you want them to think of you and say, that's a generous person right there. Uh, do you want them to think of you and think, you know, they're the one, they always start well, but they always kind of give up in the middle, right? N nobody wants that. But whether you realize it or not, everyone is known for something that our actions or our inactions are building a reputation that define us. In fact, in the book of Proverbs, uh, the writer Solomon says that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches and loving favor rather than silver and gold. So today we're concluding a series that we've been calling Viewfinder. And we've been saying that uh, this is the secret weapon to making sense of life. The secret weapon to making sense of life is perspective. Because when your perspective changes, even if nothing else changes in your life, everything changes around you. That's the power of a changed perspective. And so in this series, we've been looking at a couple of minor prophets, these little prophetic books that are tucked away at the back end of the Old Testament. And so we looked, we spent a couple of weeks, three weeks, looking at Habakkuk and he's, as he wrestled with God. We looked at uh, Joel and the struggles that he was having as he was looking and dealing with the people of Israel. And then we've been looking at this book called Micah that we're concluding today. And Micah was a prophet both to the north and southern kingdom of Israel. Micah wasn't a high society guy like other prophets. He was a regular guy with a message that impacted common people. And what's different about Micah than the other prophets is that the people of the southern kingdom heeded his message and changed. Most of the other prophets were completely ignored, but people in the southern kingdom embraced Micah's message. They believed that Micah's message was important for the day that they were living in, and I firmly believe that Micah's message is important for the day that we are living in. And Micah's gonna challenge us to ask the question that we wanna be known for. He's gonna challenge us to answer the question, what does God want from me? Because when you answer those questions, and you center your life around the answers to those questions, your life becomes focused, your life becomes purposed, and your life becomes unstoppable. So we're going to start in chapter 6 of Micah, and we're going to be in verse 1, and here's what we read. It says, Now hear what the Lord says. Arise, arise plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint. And you, strong foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a complaint against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. I sent uh, before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled. And what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, from Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the righteousness of the Lord. If you pause there and give me your attention, God enters the conversation with Israel and asks them, what did I do? What did I do that was so wrong that you would walk away from me and get involved in these horrible practices? And he says, you were slaves in Egypt, remember that? And I rescued you. Now, most of us know that story. You've either read the book of Exodus or you've seen the movie. But there's the point of God mentioning this is to highlight that Israel were his special and chosen people. 
And he says to them in verse 5, he says, do you remember Balak, king of Moab? Remember what Balaam, uh, remember what he asked Balaam to do? Now, God is communicating with the people in a very rabbinic way, and uh, he's leading them in a conversation by asking questions. That is a rabbinic method that is used even to this day. In Hebrew, that's called a remiz, uh, and that's a Hebrew word that means a hint. And so Jesus used this teaching method over and over. That's why if you ever read the Gospels and uh, Jesus says something, and then the next verse it says, and then they tried to kill Jesus, and you're like, hold on, did I miss something? Uh, what happened? And it's because it's a remiss. Because Jesus quotes a verse, and the answer isn't the verse. The answer is the next verse. And so that's why the enemies of Jesus would get bent out of shape. So he asks, and he says, well, do you remember what happened between Balak, the king of Moab, and Balaam? Balak was a king that saw the people of Israel defeated another country called Ammon on their way from Egypt to the promised land. And so he hires Balaam, who was a prophet of God, and he says, look, I know that God is with you. Balak says to Balaam, and he says, so here's what I want you to do. I'm gonna pay you some money, and I want you to curse the people of Israel. And so this is what, what happens, is that then Balaam says, all right, well, he, he prays, and then he says, this is what in Numbers 22, it says, but God said to Balaam, do not go with them. You must not put a curse on those people because they are blessed. What he's opening this, this opening volley, this conversation that he wants to have with the people and he's, God is telling the people through this question and answer, he's saying, don't you realize that through all these years I've been with you? Don't you realize through all these years you've been blessed and that you have been a blessed people? Don't walk away now. And now this inspires Micah to kind of stand before God on behalf of the people and introduce the conversation. And so here's what he says in verse six. He says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the most high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year, a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And if you pause there and give me your attention, let me explain what's happening here. Micah is saying, with what shall I come before the Lord? In, in a Semitic culture, this is the language of relationship. He is saying on behalf of the people, how do I enter into a relationship with God? And then he starts listing some of the ways that you might think. He says, well, can I have, what about a calf that's a year old? This is a very expensive way to make a sacrifice and repent and make things right between you and God. He says, what about a thousand or thousands of rams? Only an extremely rich person would have anywhere near that type of wealth. Or he says this, what about 10,000 rivers of oil? This was the equivalent to our day of like uncalculated billions and billions of dollars. And then he says, what about my kids? Do I give my firstborn uh, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He's saying, can I give that which is most precious to me? And the, the most important phrase is what he's, it's kind of tucked away in the beginning there in verse six, when he says, shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Now, one of the things, if you've never studied this, and it's okay if you haven't, because you're going to learn about it right now. Uh, if you're, the book of Leviticus outlines the different types of offerings that you would give. And I know sometimes 
as Christians, we look back on the offerings and like, oh, well, that's because they sinned and then they had to give this animal sacrifice. That wasn't the only reason that people would give offerings. Uh, there were fellowship offerings where this wasn't a sin. You just gave a fellowship offering because you were just glad that things were right between you and God. When he talks about the burnt offering, the burnt offering was a very special offering because it wasn't about atoning for sin. It was a, an offering of total consecration. It was, you know, the animal would get sacrificed and as it was, you know, being cooked on this type of barbecue as the altar was, he was saying, just like this uh, animal is being totally consumed by the fire, I want my life to be cons totally consumed by God. And he's saying, do I, I want to give this, this offering, this burnt offering to say to God, my, my life is yours, totally yours. But he's asking the question, what does it take to be in a right relationship with God. And that's what happens in verse eight, which is a very famous verse, very misunderstood, but we'll, let me read it to you. In verse eight, it says, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, this verse is the Old Testament version of the great commandment that Jesus gave us. And if you're not uh, aware of the great commandment, uh, or at least what it's called. You're probably familiar with the verse, perhaps. But it says this in Matthew 22. You'll see it on the screen. It says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, these are essentially identical passages, just given some, some different terminology. Walking humbly with your God is loving God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Loving your neighbor is doing justly and loving mercy. And so I'm gonna drill down on this in a few minutes, but uh, I, I, I do want to share that this verse gets quoted all the time and it's rarely understood. These are not three separate ideas that you invoke based on what's happening in the world. These are three totally interwoven ideas that cannot be disentangled. You cannot walk humbly with God without being merciful. You can't do justly if you don't walk with God. You can't love mercy if you don't know what is just. This is a beautiful three-legged stool and all three points have to be emphasized and understood for it to work. Now, the rest of Micah, the rest of chapter six and the rest of chapter seven really become a commentary on these three points. So in, in the rest of chapter six, Micah points out the idolatry of King Ahab and uh, Omri, his father, and how and the abominable practices that were being involved. And you'll see that in chapter six, verses 13 through 16. They weren't walking humbly with their God. In chapter seven, he points out, in chapter seven, verses three and four, he points out the political leaders who were taking bribes and perverting justice. They weren't doing justly. He points out that families were turning on each other and exploiting each other. In verses five through seven, they weren't loving mercy. And every difficult that the nation of Israel would soon face could have been averted simply if they had done what Micah was encouraging them to do. So how does that apply to us? How does it apply to us, especially when Micah 6.8 gets thrown around all the time when it comes to social issues? And is it being used correctly? Is it being used incorrectly? How do we as Christians respond to that? How do, what do these verses even really mean? Three things I want to tell you. Here's the first one. 
The first is this, is that this is an internal commandment, not a weapon. Let me explain what I mean by that. It's an internal commandment, not a weapon. Here's what you have to understand. You doing justly, what does the Lord require of you, Micah says, but to do justly. Doing justly is a command about you. It's a command for you to do what's right in God's sight as the scriptures teach us. Loving mercy is what we do for others. It means we hold ourselves to a tougher standard than we hold other people. We do justly, but then we offer mercy when others don't meet the same standard that we have. And then we have humility as we walk with God because we are never doing as well as we probably think we are. And we're grateful for the grace that God gives us. But I want to tell you something. The moment that we weaponize Micah 6.8, the moment that we point a finger at someone who isn't doing justice as much as we think that they should be doing justice, the, the moment that we say, well, apparently you don't care about justice or doing as right as much as I do, you're in violation of the verse. Because this verse doesn't work when you weaponize it. It only works when you internalize it and ask God to show you your blind spots. And if someone else falls short, that's why we have to love mercy. But here's what we tend to do if we're just gonna be real honest. We tend to love mercy for ourselves and we tend to want judgment for others. And let me tell you something, that is a sign of us not being right with God. The Apostle Paul borrows some of this phraseology and, and or certainly the ideas in the book of Ephesians. And he says this in chapter four, verse 32, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Listen, do justly. That's for us. Love mercy. That's for others. That, there's a, uh, John Solaroli uh, is a pastor who helped me uh, and my wife start Calvary 20 years ago, and he left last year starting a great church. I talk to him probably almost every week. And a few years ago, and I love telling this story because it makes him look so great and me look like an idiot. Um, but a few years ago, he lent his car to someone, and they scratched up the car when they barred it. And John, I'm like, John, what are you going to do with this guy? And he goes, ah, you know, I just, I'll fix it. And, and I, I forgave him. And I got so mad. And I was like, you are so irresponsible. You should make him pay for it. There are consequences to action. I gave this whole list of reasons and I made quite an argument in my own mind as to why I was right. And so here's what happens is that he's listening to me and he said, but yeah, but here's what happened is that uh, Bob, I, I borrowed a friend of mine's truck uh, last week and, and I scratched it up accidentally when I was putting stuff in the bed of the truck and, and he forgave me. And so I just thought with this guy that I should, be, I should forgive him. And I was like, okay, okay, well, you know, all right, well, you know, don't let it happen again. And I, I just felt like, so, I felt like such an idiot. And, and here's why. Because that's Micah 6.8 in action. Doing justly, that's me. But loving mercy is for if someone falls short. And all of us together walking humbly with God because we're probably not doing as well as we think we are because we all fall short. Here's the second thing that's important to note is that being nice doesn't make you right with God. You see, some people look at this verse as being the only prescription. It's like, what does God want? This is all that he wants. 
and I just have to be nice to people and then all things are, are right. Because if I do justice and love mercy, then the result is that I'm walking humbly with God. Those are three things that we need to be engaged in. Now let me, if I can, uh, for just a moment, I want to talk about the meta structure of the biblical narrative. And if um, you've never heard that, you want to sound smart when you go out to lunch with your friends, say, you know, let's have a conversation about the meta structure of the biblical narrative. Uh, but I do want to talk about the meta structure of the biblical narrative for a second. God gives Israel 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And then a couple chapters later, he gives them instructions on how to build the tabernacle. And then he gives them instructions on what sacrifices they need to make in the tabernacle. You know why? Because God gave them the Ten Commandments because he knew they wouldn't be able to keep them. And so there had to be a place where they could atone for sin. This goes back to the language of verses 6 and 7 of Micah 6 when he says, What shall I give to God? The problem is there's nothing you and I can give. Because being right with God is a gift. And if that's the case, that it's a gift, then Micah 6.8 becomes the activity of someone who knows God and wants to represent him rightly. Because at the end of verse 8 is walking humbly with your God. That doesn't mean just being humble. It's humbly walking with your God, Micah's God, the God of Israel. In fact, in the book of Titus, chapter 3, and if you've been with us, we studied that book last year. But it says this. This is what Paul writes to Titus. He says, when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The longer that you walk with God. Here's the goal. The Bible calls this sanctification, the process of you being transformed by the Holy Spirit into the new person that God is creating you to be. And the idea is the longer that you walk with God, the more your heart and God's heart are in tune and the more that you reflect God's heart in your life. Several years ago, I was at Bayside uh, with my sister and my dad. And my dad had kind of wandered off and uh, we couldn't find him. And you know how Bayside is. There's just stuff everywhere outside. And so I'm trying to go find him. And I was looking forever. And I couldn't, uh, I couldn't find him. And then out of the corner of my eye, I saw him. And I turned. And I said, hey, where you been? And it was a mirror. It was not even him. It was, uh, it was my dad that I was 40 years old. And he was 75. And I thought I saw a 75-year-old man in the mirror. And I saw me, and it really hurt me. I'll be honest. I cried a little that day. Uh, but here's, here's the point, is that there should be something. That relationship causes a reflection to look similar. You see, that's what happens when you have, you look in, in the mirror and you realize, like, to some degree, you're becoming your parents, whether you like it or not. But whenever there is relationship, there is this idea that, I, that I'm beginning to reflect the person that I'm closest to. And that is the goal of our lives, is to become more like him with each day that passes. Now, here's the third thing I want to tell you, and then we're done, is that God set the price and paid the cost. Micah says in verse 7, when he's trying to figure out what he can give God, he said, should I give my firstborn for my transgression? 
Now, this isn't extreme language or just, uh, you know, hyperbolic language when we say things like, man, I went to that car dealership and they were, uh, they were charging an arm and a leg. That's not what's being said here. This is an idea that's rooted in Israel's history. In Exodus chapter 13, there's a passage that talks about the firstborn of every family belonging to God. And the parents would offer a sacrifice to redeem the child. And uh, it's the law of the firstborn. And it was meant to be a reminder to the people of Israel that the firstborn of the Egyptians died and that God delivered the children of Israel and freed them. So Micah is referencing this command and he's also referencing a story that's even further back in Genesis chapter 22 when God tells Abraham, to take your one and only son and offer him as a sacrifice. And once again, you know, if you uh, read the New Atheists and, and that whole group, uh, they have such a problem with this. And, you know, they, they, t they call it divine child abuse and whatever, but they really have no idea that there's a picture that God is painting. That this is a powerful story, and we've taught it in the past, but it really deserves its own message. But Abraham obeys God when God says, take your only son up to this mountain, and I want you to offer him. And he takes, him, uh, he takes Isaac, his son, to this mountain that's called Moriah. Now, you've got to understand something that I know that in the pictures, if you've seen it, it shows that Isaac is like a nine-year-old kid. Isaac is in his mid-30s. He's old enough to overpower his father if he wants to. But Abraham tells his son, hey, we're going to go worship. And then in, in verse 7 of Genesis 22, it says this, but Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God will provide the lamb. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went together. So Isaac willingly lays himself on the altar. And just before Abraham plunges this knife into his son, God stops him. And a ram appears that hadn't been there before. The ram was caught in these bushes. And that becomes the offering. And then the two, the dad and son walk down. But here's the curious thing. Abraham says, uh, you know, we, we hear, he says, God will provide a lamb. And then a ram is caught in the thickets. And we kind of just read and we're like, oh yeah, that must be what God meant. It wasn't a lamb, it was a ram. And they rhyme, so that must be it. And, and, but it's not. It's, it's deeper than that. It, it actually, we don't even realize it until the Gospel of John, chapter 1, when John the Baptist is baptizing people and Jesus shows up there on, on the beach of the, uh, there in Galilee at the Jordan River. And it says this, and you'll see it on the screen. It says, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And three years after John spoke those words, Jesus went up that very same Mount Moriah. It went by another name. Um, and, and it went by the name Golgotha. In Latin, it went by the name Calvary. And Jesus fulfilled the words of Abraham that God himself provided the lamb. You see, Abraham's story was to get, to show us a picture that to show us that the ultimate father would pay the ultimate price by sending his son so that we could experience forgiveness. And if we want to do justly and love mercy and walk humbly, we need to come to Jesus and experience forgiveness.
Listen, God did justly because he set the highest price possible for sin. He said this, the wages of sin is death. But then God loved mercy by sending his son to pay the price on our behalf. And then he, he humbly invites all of us to walk with him. Listen, we are living in a time when we need hope more than ever. And alcohol isn't going to do it. Drugs aren't going to do it. Uh, all of these things are on the rise. Pornography is uh, on the rise exponentially. The news isn't going to do it. Giving into anger and destructive emotions isn't going to do it. This is why our culture is spinning out of control. We have one hope, and it's not an election in November. It's that God has elected you to believe. It's that he wants everyone to come to know him, that this can be your moment to invite Jesus into your life, to experience forgiveness from sin, be free from the guilt that you've been carrying around, the anger, the anxiety, and have hope for the future. And that all happens when you decide that you're going to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for the challenge that you give us as believers to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with you. And for those of us that are listening today and we need to invite Jesus to come into our lives, we're asking him to forgive us of everything that we've done wrong. If that's you, I want to invite you to just simply repeat this prayer with me. Just saying, dear God, I come to you today and I ask you to forgive me of all I've done wrong. I want to walk with Jesus. I want to know Jesus. I want to receive that forgiveness that comes from the cross. And I want to start humbly walking with you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.